Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and then we interview a guest together about their work in design, because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about how to design for concurrent hybrid learning without spending a lot of money on technology, training, and new software platforms. COVID has forced a revolution in digital education. Joining us today as guest co-host is Alan Chachanov, an educator, writer, and speaker whose recent Medium article explores this very topic. Our special guest is Fred Deacon, who runs a studio called Fanco that specializes in interactive and educational projects. But before we dive in, just wanted to share that we do a live podcast show. We host a live podcast recording so that you listeners can ask your questions live for our guests and get a chance to see the behind the scenes of the podcast recording. So in the past, we've chatted about designing for social impact, experiential design, sustainable design. It's so fun to join the conversation. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on events and you'll always see the latest live podcast events and you can register right there. And with that, on to this week's topic. In April, Alan Chachanov published an article on Medium called How to Teach Hybrid in the Fall with Zoom and Almost No Money. He explored a few homegrown solutions to consider for those who need to teach under a concurrent hybrid model. To dive deeper into the article, Alan Chachanov joins us as guest co-host this week. Alan is an educator, writer, and speaker. He is the founding chair of the MFA in Products of Design graduate program at the School of Visual Arts in New York City and a partner of Core 77, the design network serving a global community of designers and design enthusiasts since 1995. Alan's work in product design is focused on medical, surgical, and diagnostic fields. He's been named on numerous design and utility patents, has received awards from the Art Directors Club, the One Club, ID Magazine, and Communication Arts. He has also served on the boards of the National AIGA, Designers Accord, Design Ignites Change, and NYC by Design. Alan advocates for the power and capacity of design. Alan, welcome. It's so good to see you. Thank you, Sam. It's great to see you. Great to hear you. Oh, likewise. I love this article and I want to get into it, but at first I kind of want to get us in that mode of like what the problem was. And I know you teach design as problem solving. So let's dive into those problems and challenges you were facing as a professor when like, bam, instantly you were teaching remote. What were you experiencing? What were the students experiencing? And like, what were the frustrations that made you dive deep into this, you know, figuring out hybrid models? It was sudden. I mean, it happened obviously last March. We had our fingers crossed for September, but of course, uh, there was just absolutely no way to be in person. SVA was entirely online for the past academic year. And as we look towards September, what really precipitated things is that I was in a chairs meeting and we were advised by the International Student Office director that we may not see our international students in September because of either travel bans or because of delayed student visas, and that we better be ready to teach hybrid. So you could see the look on the faces of all the different chairs in this Zoom meeting. Uh, everyone was kind of freaking out. And I'm like, well, you know, I had already been thinking about this and let's go find out. So, you know, I hit the internet pretty hard. And honestly, I could not believe how little I was able to find about how to do this. I found some articles on how to think about it pedagogically, how to teach people who were in the room and not in the room at the same time. And frankly, the advice is try not to 
do it if you can help it. If you have enough students, have like an online section and an in-person session. But if you had to do it from a technological perspective, there was almost nothing. It was remarkable. And so I set out to write the article that I wish that I could have found. And I talked to technologists and educators around the world, graduate, undergraduate, high school, elementary school. It didn't matter. Anybody who had some experience doing this, anyone who was trying to do it and anyone who had stories about what it was like to do it or technology or what it was like to set it up. Simultaneously, we were doing some prototyping in one of our classrooms with essentially, you know, some alumni online and, you know, some staff in masks here. Truthfully, it was a kind of a disaster. Yeah. You know, I'm a design person, so like I never give up. Right. But you know, any normal person would have said, you can't do this. My favorite quote is I talked to Tom Igo at ITP at New York University. And he says, the reason this is so difficult, Alan, the reason this is like impossible is because of physics. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, well, that sounds like a really great challenge. It started with fear. And then I like impossible things. This actually, someone told me that this was going to be impossible. And I'm like, I'm in. Um, and I know that we're going to be joined by Fred in a, in a little bit, but he was one of the people who really moved me past, like, we will find a way because he has a lot of experience in trying to do these sort of rich interactions between creative teams at a distance, but they also had like funding and people. And, uh, and for me, I wanted to put something together that was essentially free. And very importantly, that didn't require training of faculty. It's hard enough to get faculty to like turn in grades or to use like a learning management system and to actually train them up on how to teach, you know, hybrid synchronous technologically. I reasoned was, was not reasonable. Mm -hmm. Like there has to be, it has to be basically free and no training and use what you have. Yeah. And I'm glad I actually started with that point of departure because there's some options in there that are essentially no capital investment on the part of the school, presuming that the students have laptops. You know, I would like to say also that we are in June right now recording this end of June and, you know, different people around the world are in very different places in terms of where they are in the pandemic and where they are in terms of thinking about the world of education. And although here in this country, in the United States, and particularly in New York, things are actually looking really, really good for the fall, that is not true universally at all. So I also wanted to put this thing together for everybody else, not knowing what stage people were going to be at. You know, we may need to do this. If everybody magically shows up in September, that's great. But if they don't show up in September, or there's a a backslide in the pandemic and in distancing, we may need to go back to either a hybrid situation or an online situation. So I wanted to put something together that was going to acknowledge the privilege that we're in here and allow for all different kinds of people to at least use this as a kind of starting point and actually talk a lot about how there's no perfect solution. You know, if you're in, if you're noisy, if your teacher does a lot of like animated teaching, if there are three zoomies and 12 roomies or three, you know, roomies and 12 zoomies, different technological starting points will make more sense. Let's dive into roomies and zoomies because I know you mentioned them in the article. What are roomies and zoomies? 
I'm hoping that we don't have to define that. Um, yeah, I'm trying to recall where I heard that terminology first, but it seemed perfect and automatic and without requirement for definition. So, you know, we're talking about people who are in the room or not in the room. You know, the other foundational principle for this thing is that we were going to use Zoom. Um, everybody knows how to use Zoom. Again, everybody. It's not everybody, of course, but lots of people, maybe most people. Teachers are reasonably comfortable with it. Administrators, sysadmins, tech people. Students certainly are going to be way better at it than any teacher is. And also Zoom is great in terms of doing the heavy lifting for AV. When you share your screen, everybody sees that screen. So I really wanted to stay away from like smart podiums if you had one. Lots of high schools have like, you know, smart screens, just like none of that. It's going to happen on Zoom. It's also, you know, relatively free. So you've got people in the room, people not in the room. And then you have teachers who are either in the room or not in the room as well. I think that there's a presumption that the teachers are there. And like, that's not true. They may not be there. And so how does a teacher effectively facilitate a class when they are remote and they have remote students and in-room students? So, you know, you could throw your hands up and say, well, this is just a mess or try and work through it in these different scenarios and try and make some proposals for each of them. We saw one of your TEDx talks where you talked about design as equations and the proportions between things. Because this is, just feels so, to me, overwhelming, that there's so many different variables. What are the variables of that equation for roomies and zoomies and the different people that you are considering and kind of like trying to balance, I guess, if we keep that equation metaphor going? What a perfect question and a really lovely way of framing it. One is, is, is numbers. How many people in the room or how many people are not in the room? Certainly. The second would be architecture and environment and acoustics. I heard some really amazing anecdotes, particularly from high school and elementary school teachers. And one of them had said, you know, there's, there's two things that we're finding. One is that the teachers are so concerned with the Zoomies having a good experience that they're basically ignoring the people in the room. Wow. Yeah. And then, because you think that the privilege was actually for the people in the room. Right. And, and here in a second anecdote that, that I share is also deprivileging the students in the room. She was saying, you know, the windows are open. We're in Manhattan, but we want lots of airflow and it's noisy, right? The students are six feet apart and they're wearing masks. <laughs> so nobody can hear anything in the room. The Zoomies can hear everything. They're great. And so I would say the numbers, the acoustics, and then really the teaching style or the format of the class. So if you've got a teacher who's very Socratic, it's just like very, I'm you know, moving my arms back and forth, very, there's a lot of exchange of ideas. People really, really need to hear each other. And if you've got a teacher who is just nothing but like talking like, you know, at students in, in a way that is a simpler thing. If you've got students who are sharing work, you know, we're in the design world. So there's just a lot of sharing out critique, feedback, iteration, co-creation, working in teams, working in pairs. And I would say finally, the other big factor is the tech tolerance of the teacher. Um, and of, frankly, of the department and the department head and the technologists and whatever support a, a school has. Some teachers are just not going to go for any of this. They are rightfully fearful. And also, let's be honest, there are some teachers who feel that they don't want to be in a position where they are less than, that they, they, they understand less. And if they need a student to come up and change the audio preferences on their Zoom, they feel that it, it maybe makes them not look strong. And again, I think you need to meet people where they are. If you're the kind of faculty who feels that way, I think we can't be mad at you. We need to 
we need to meet you where you are. And so I think that in some ways that may be the biggest factor of all is exactly how keen is your teacher for using technology to have a rich environment. You know, without getting into the article too much, there are really sort of like two paradigms that this boils down to. One is improving on the state of the art solution now, which is which is basically a, it's called a Zoom cart or there's an owl. There's a couple products out there. And of course, people working quickly on, on, on other products. But essentially, you're throwing a camera and a microphone in the back of the room and hoping for the best so that the zoomies can see the room, the back of the heads of the students and the front face of the teacher, if it's a one teacher, and it's sort of a conventional setup. And they can sort of, sort of hear but not really. And so there are some proposals for how to actually do this better using existing equipment. The more radical, I would say, even though in, in some ways it's much simpler solution that I'm proposing is that everybody's still on Zoom. The students in the room still bring their laptop. And again, we're assuming a level of privilege that the students have laptops or the schools have Chromebooks. And, you know, I try and you know acknowledge that right away and that you're still in Zoom. And if the students in the room are in Zoom on their laptops, then they have a great camera on them, on their face, right? That the Zoomies can see individually. It's not some camera in the back of the room. And they have a great microphone, which turns out to be the biggest challenge of all. Because if they turn that microphone on and there's all these open mics and speakers, it is the feedback nightmare that you have never heard. And believe me, in our prototyping, we lived through that. And I tried to give some dimensionality to that in the writing. And so what I'm proposing is a kind of a UN model where you use your own earbuds, your headphones with one out and one in, and then you're, you're basically down to a latency problem that when you, when, when, a, let's say a student beside you speaks, that voice is going through the internet, through zoom servers, back through the internet and back out of your zoom. And there's going to be a tiny little delay and it can be very, very small and it can be very long and extremely annoying, even if it is tiny. Except that when we tested this idea with some high school students in Brooklyn, I kept saying, well, didn't the student really bother the students? And the teacher said, Alan, they didn't care. And so I had this bias that this might be unacceptable. And, and there's like three ways to mitigate, you know, the, the latency annoyance. And they didn't care. I mean, they have their headphones on in all day anyway. So another thing to keep in mind is that the technology level of comfort of the technology for the teacher, the staff, you know, the sort of administration is going to, you know, potentially be radically different than it is for the actual students, whether they're elementary students or high school students or university or college or graduate students. And then of course, when we go into, into the business world, because I think this article isn't just for schools, then again, you're, you're talking to a different kind of population who also might have a different kind of tolerance. And so we tested some interesting scenarios where they have their camera on, but they learn to ignore looking at themselves in the laptop. You can also turn self-view off, which is really important, that they can, they can see the zoomies. Um, also, there's a few tricks that I discovered and learned. You can actually move people to the top row, uh, the tiles in Zoom, which almost nobody seems to know. I certainly didn't. So you can move your zoomies to the top row if you're a teacher or a student so that you can just sort of scan the top row and pay attention and see them in the face. The other thing that we tried and we're not able to test enough was logging in with a phone. Again, privilege, but a lot of students have phones and the Zoom app is actually quite good. Essentially, they would set their phone up on a piece of gum, aiming at them and try and ignore it, right? 
so that they could have a great camera and mic for the zoomies, but that they could still be present in the room. And this is this is really the trade-off, right? If you really want to see and hear, if you want to treat the zoomies really, really well, then you're back on Zoom, you're using almost no technology. Everybody knows how to use Zoom, and there, there's mostly a requirement to have the room speakers off. There is a scenario where you can have the room speakers on, you know, again, put a link to the article and you can read about it. And I did diagrams as well. If you only have just a couple people and maybe the acoustics are good enough where you can use a two mic solution in the room and there's some suggestions for actually how to do that in a homegrown way, then you can try that. You can also just try a few things and see how the, the teacher, the, the students, and the format of the class respond. I was speaking to one high school teacher and she was really adamant, like do not be prescriptive. You know, have some options and be very clear with the faculty that they should be very clear with their students that we're not gonna get it right, right away. We're learning together. And I think that that's a, that's a nice thing. I like that. This was awesome, Alan. Thank you for sharing your perspective. And we will post a link to the article. Listeners, check out Alan's blog to read this article and more. Visit chachanov.medium.com. We'll post the link. And Alan, stick around and we'll bring Fred Deacon into the conversation and a quick break. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Fred Deacon. Fred currently runs Fanco, a studio that specializes in interactive and educational projects. Previously, he was a professor of digital arts at the University of the Arts London. He is one half of the band Lemon Jelly and the founder and director of the digital design agency Airside. Fred has performed at TED, judged the British Animation Awards, and even given talks at the Design Museum. That's the Design Museum in London. He is self-described as a teenage math geek obsessed with music and alternative culture to a fully-fledged musician, designer, artist, educator today. I mean, dream. Fred, nice to meet you. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Sam. It's very strange having my words uh, read back to me now. I think I can own that, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's great to have you, especially I know you, you and Alan have talked a lot about this stuff. I wanted to start with, did you teach during this COVID time and have to like learn to teach via Zoom and do remote learning? No, quite the reverse, in fact. We were running a project, me and my colleagues were running a project from 2013, which was about online education and exploring blended learning environments and doing experiments in that space. So we were actually running an online workshop as COVID broke in March 2020, which was quite something to actually start the workshop where we were kind of in a period of normality and then end the workshop in literally in lockdown. And a lot of people, I mean, I've got a lot of video of that workshop and there's a lot of people just kind of going, Thank the sweet Lord I'm here in this space now. It was a major sort of exercise in, in mass therapy. Yeah, totally. 
But yeah, it was fascinating seeing that transition because I went from a period of time where I, I've been running them, uh, I was running like four a year in a variety of formats, uh, mostly for students. Um, we did also do, do one with, with staff and students. And for the first, we, it was the third year we were doing the staff and student uh, workshop as pandemic broke. And in the first two years, I definitely got to the end of these workshops and the staff would go, yeah, that's quite interesting, but thanks, but no thanks. You know, <laughs> uh, it's like, yeah, this is this is cool. If I, yeah, but I don't really, don't really want to pursue it. I like being in the room. See? Yeah. And then on this one, it was like, oh, how do you do that again? Just just run by that one more time. <laughs> and it was much more, the uptake was much keener, as you can probably imagine. And it was certainly a very busy period I bet. in the uh, in the first half, first, second quarter of, of 2020, where I was a man in demand. It does feel like the world has, has obviously gone online. But at the same time, I am still constantly surprised by how little innovation there still is in this space. It really seems bizarre that, I mean, I think people have just gone to Zoom and then made it work and then gone, oh, thank you, and then just sort of stopped. I think there's still a lot of, of innovation available in that space. Perhaps it's more also that people are still reeling from this very bizarre series of world events and they haven't yet got the mental space to um, to actually start pursuing excellence and innovation in this field. And I've seen a few good things, you know, there's no doubt there are people exploring, but on the whole, I think the default mode is let's just have a, on the whole, let's be frank, a poor imitation of what we had in the real world, transported online and okay, this just about works, right, I've got more important things to do than work out how to take it forward, which is why it's so great to talk to, to Alan about what he's been doing to actually try and kind of optimize this space. How did you two connect? Was it through your article, Alan? No, 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 not at all. Actually, Fred put wind in the sails of actually, you know, putting this article together. You know, it is interesting because in the piece, I, I actually say it right explicitly, this isn't about doing it well. This is about doing it, how to do it at all. And I was so lucky to speak with Fred because it started in a place on the continuum of aspiration. Fred was actually really interested in how do you actually do creativity at a distance with groups of innovative people in a way where they can flourish. And I think that that was just very, very healthy and, and inspirational for me to say, okay, so let's talk to someone who's actually tried to do this beautifully, optimally, artistically, and with, with, with like bravery. And how does that meet this crisis moment that we're in? And how can we provide a set of starting points where people can then be innovative? These are very, two very stark ends of the continuum. But I just felt so lucky to find Fred at the moment that I did, where just like, wow, like this is actually quite fascinating. And this isn't just about plugging a hole. This is about building a foundation for creativity of humans uh, who, in some sense, may always be working at a distance and, and should to bring in, at the very least, a diversity in culture and point of view. These tools, approaches are going to have so much impact even beyond the classroom, right? I think about my own team and how we're constantly struggling to be creative, innovative in our work as we're remote. So yeah, I'm very curious. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear sort of some of your approaches on how to be creative, learn creativity while, you know, we're these little boxes of, of video. Um, I mean, we were very lucky that we had, as I say, sort of six or seven years to kind of organically evolve what we were doing and all the processes and stuff. But I think the main thing that I learned is that it really, the, the software and the tools, you know, it's, you've got to get it right, but it's not particularly mission critical. It's much more about the people and the systems and the processes that you have in place. And I was very lucky to be working within the university. UAL is a very diverse university. And I was, I was kind of like, I knew as a white 50 something male, 
that I wasn't going to have the cutting edge tools. The the zeitgeist, the digital zeitgeist is not necessarily in my blood. I've got the benefit of experience and context. I can see the way things have evolved and I was there at the birth of the internet. So I've got that kind of broader perspective. But getting a team around me making sure that the values of the team and the kind of the processes and that we had a very flat hierarchy, giving the team ownership over how these systems evolved, especially since we were working with primarily students, so that it's young people. And if you don't go to them and speak in their language, you know, you're just, you know, why, why bother really? And that's the huge mistake I see a whole bunch of institutions make. They say, well, we will build a platform. We will commission our friends over here who've made many such platforms. And you really have to embed that. I mean, these are all great touchstones and words and you see them in strategy documents, uh, but I don't necessarily see them, you know, actions speak louder than words. And, and sometimes those strategy documents are written without any co-creation in the document itself. So easy to say, hard to do, certainly. You have to leave your ego at the door to some degree. But we were very keen on human-centered processes, making sure the team was, was integrated and had the same values and um, diversity that we, we were going to be meeting in the, in the participants participants, making sure we heard all the voices. I mean, there's a really, we always had regular check-ins at the beginning of the day. Uh, and we tried to make it fun, make it joyful. I think it's, again, it's a very simple and glib thing to say. But I think if you're going into a meeting going, oh, I'm sorry, we're all on Zoom. Oh my goodness, what a nuisance. And oh, we'll just have to grit our teeth. Well, you know, you're, 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 you've fallen the first hurdle, really. There are so many pluses about this, about this place. You know, I'm sure we've all felt now, you know, we, we, we save so much time in commuting. You can be much more nimble about how you share documents and how you interact. Breakout rooms are fantastic, you know, again, instant kind of little mini, mini classrooms. I think in terms of participants, I think we really learned that you have to engage. I mean, you've got this situation now where your students have Facebook available or indeed, uh, you know, TikTok available at the click of a button. So if you're not engaging with them, then, you, you know, they'll go. They're, they're gone. And obviously, students are shy as well. So it's finding how you have that dialogue. My approach is definitely to bring a lot of people into the space, to make it a conversational space, to ask people Take them through a process where they're contributing first, perhaps in pairs in breakout rooms and then in a wider context. And then, I mean, this is all kind of standard in the room stuff, but somehow it seems to float away sometimes when people are online. So you have to really keep an eye on that, on that, on that, you know, user experience, I think. And if you get it right, it's incredibly powerful. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so it's made of people. It's not made of technology. So the technology has to be at a base level where it's not in your way. At, you know, optimally, it's actually going to create affordances that you didn't have without it. Things like the chat window. You know, Fred, the notion of scale was something that really, really um, impressed and inspired me, particularly when I saw that image that you had shared of projecting remote students giant on the wall, and and even the choice of architecture that the room where the the roomies were and that the zoomies could be giant in that room it it actually looked more exciting it was just like this is a creative workshop that i am dying to be a part of and so you really flipped i think i imagine when people walked in there they were like this is going to be great and uh, and i think that it's just an enormous win can you talk more about that fred how you did that cuz that i do i want to get back to the human piece of it. But that seems like a technological sort of innovation. And I know you've done like projection mapping and whatnot. So how did you go about like creating that? It, it actually it reminds me of what like the MBA had done, right? With their crowds, with 
their audience was just like on the sidelines. They couldn't have people. So they put big pictures of people basically like on video conference. And I thought like, this is actually better. Well, we had a situation where we were a workshop where we had sort of four classrooms, four cohorts of students. And we had uh, one cohort in the room each day and the other three were online. And we wanted to basically make this explicit to not only the students, but to the experts we got in to, um, to lecture to the students uh, in the room. So if they're talking to, to a bunch of students, so they're coming into our workshop, we want to obviously impress them. And we want to convey the fact very literally that they're not just talking to the 20 students in the room, they're talking to another 60 students online. So yeah, we, we projected them. Uh, we projected the Zoom window that had all those 60 students in and we projected you know, a selection of them online. And then when they were speaking, we did get pretty slick with the sound. We were lucky. You know, we, again, we had a great tech team. It's all about, all about being more panned I think, in these situations and making sure you know, one person can't do this sort of, sort of stuff. But yeah, we had a pretty slick team that were able to, if someone wanted to speak, they'd let us know in the chat window, they'd raise a hand or whatever, and then we could make them full screen and bring their sound up through a PA. It's one of the things you do have to try it a few times to get it right. But we were kind of, that was our mission. We were very lucky, I think, that we were empowered by the university to actually explore this stuff. And, and it was a research project to do exactly that. So I think that's where perhaps, you know, focusing on the creativity of it, how do you foster that? Because we, we, we all need to find a way to innovate creatively in the digital space. I mean, it's kind of mission critical, I think, given that we're all, I think, a little bit disappointed where, where digital has ended at this point in time. It's about, I mean, my mission has always been about empowering the emerging generation of creatives to generate their own digital futures and making sure that they feel that they have the skills and the chops and the confidence to say, okay, this isn't how it should be. This isn't how my digital world should be, but I can create a new digital space over here. So again, you've got to lead by example. You know, knowing then what you know now, you know, six years ago, I'm wondering if you can place yourself back there, you know, with this benefit of knowledge of where we are now, what kinds of moves are you proud of making back when you started to experiment? And maybe even a couple of things about what might you have done? I think undoubtedly I am proudest of creating strong digital communities where people who were literally in, you know, half a dozen different countries felt incredibly bonded by the end of their experience. That I think was the biggest win. Uh, and and almost universally, people would come into the program and, and, and certainly, you know, I've already mentioned staff, the students also were going, you know, I'm not sure about this. I really don't want to spend all day on a chat window, on a video call. And then by the end of it, they were going, oh, my God, I just love this space. I love these people. We've done so much together. I can't believe we've achieved all this and we haven't even met up physically. And I think that there's a lot of talk of Zoom fatigue and somehow, because, I mean, this, these were two-week workshops with, with students working from 10 to 6 every day and often longer. And we managed somehow to avoid Zoom fatigue. I mean, not somehow. I know how we did it. It was by being very rigorous about breaks, a very positive culture. Uh, everyone knew exactly where they were. I think people get frustrated very quickly. You have to be super on it with keeping people feeling held, I think. And so they know what's happening. You know, the, the break is coming at this point in time. So I don't have to worry about checking my email or getting a cup of tea. And then seeing those people taking those processes and bringing it into their own mini digital communities. That, that was the whole point. The workshops have two weeks. First week, we hold them. And again, I was very explicit about this. I was saying that we will tell you exactly what to do. Turn your brains off. Turn that part of your brain off. I will tell you what to do and when for the whole of the first week. And then 
you will fly, my pretties, and do it yourself. So seeing those students take up those processes and take up those values and coming together and moving off into the real world, and I've spoken to many of them since, and they're still, you know, still using those processes and evolving them, you know, taking them as their own. And I guess knowing now what I knew then, well, I mean, I didn't realize quite how important it was going to be for sure. I can see now how it's it's a kind of crucial part now. I think of of, of education of kind of of a, of a rounded graduate skill set is to be able to innovate digitally online. Is to be able to step into this place and be confident. You know, do a job interview, run a studio. I mean, more and more you've got design studios where there's no bricks and mortar. So, I mean, I, I don't know what I would have done differently, but I guess I am emboldened and um, gratified by the fact that this is clearly now you know something that is as i say mission critical it's like essential basic skill set now really i'm curious i mean i love the technology pieces and i'm like i'm transported to that room with the the faces projected but going back to the human piece and just hearing you talk fred like you're clearly a great facilitator and alan this would be a question for both of you i'm just seeing this also in the workplace as this like emerging field or role within teams as a just dynamite facilitator and it's like it seems like every organization needs it and certainly remotely it's like a talent it's really and so i guess for both of you advice for folks on how to awaken their inner (laughs) facilitator or even backing up is this something that can be learned and practiced because it seems like it like you said fred it's going to be fundamental for this kind of work yeah i i would triple underline what fred said about structure Structure is your absolute best friend. You need to hold somebody's hand, particularly in the beginning, where uh, all of the anxiety about like, so what is this? What are we doing here? How is this going to work? As soon as those questions start to layer up in the first you know, 100 seconds, you've kind of lost it. And one thing I would add to that is do stuff. Don't just say and listen to stuff. Right. Any kind of activity. Everybody type into the chat room you know, the city that they wish they were calling in from. Just any kind of participation, more participation equals more better is like always my sort of design adage. Well, that's bang on the money, and I couldn't agree more with, with, with all of that. I would say to anyone who's a bit nervous about it, I would say, well, the thing to emphasize is that you know, dead air is, is called dead air for a reason. You, know, you, you absolutely cannot leave space. But I think the get out of jail card, and I've used this to empower my members of my team and then to take them to a place where they can run workshops without me, and indeed they do now more successfully possibly than even I did, uh, is you can do it as a, as a double act or even a triple act. There's no need to feel that you have to hold the space. And actually, I think it's a great example because for me, you will have shy participants in your cohort. There's just, it's just the nature of the beast. And the way to get through that is to start them off in pairs. So if you, if you demonstrate that again, lead by example, we have a little um, kind of theory that, that you, you have to start on time. I just read a quote yesterday. It said, the only way to ensure that your meeting starts on time is to start the meeting on time. Because if you start at five past, then the next meeting will start at 10 past. Exactly. So you have to start at 10 past. But if you start at 10 past and you have the essential piece of information at 10.01, then obviously people are going to miss out. So what we always used to do is we just get two of us on and have a kind of semi-essential, a pseudo-essential conversation with each other saying, you know, some stuff. But because there's two of us, it feels like it's all going already. So that's my master tip. If you're shy or if you're underconfident or whatever, if you're dreading this facilitating thing, just find a pal and do it as a double act. 
it's all flooding back to me because I used to teach and I used to think about it as theater, as a performance. And this, it just goes back to what we expect. You mentioned, you know, TikTok and all these things that, you know, the students are using. And it's like, well, this is, that's, their expectations are being set there. There's no dead air. I think, you know, Instagram live, um, there's always this, okay, so let's wait for a couple more people to jump on. Oh, hey, Cynthia. Uh, all right, so let's just give it a couple more minutes. I'm like, there has to be a better solution. And then if you're having a conversation like this, you know, you can imagine if me and Alan were running a workshop, I mean, yeah, it wouldn't be the goal, but I think we'd be able to have a fairly interesting conversation that the students who got there early would, would be would be getting some kind of benefit from, you know, and we could start a conversation with them again, as long as it's not mission critical, to get going. And um, yeah, because it needs to be a conversation. The idea of the the sage on the stage, you know, that's old old school already. Even even pre pandemic, even pre digital, it has to be interactive. It has to be inclusive. It has to be conversational. Demonstrate that this is a, a place that is intending to create a flat hierarchy rather than some kind of top down system. I thought of one other th tip to share. I always have a, a like uh, bring your pet moment. So you know, before the break, not even after the break. So before the break, everybody go grab their pet. It turns out that actually lots of our students have pets. But then I felt like, well, you know, maybe people who don't have pets don't feel good. So I'm like, or a stuffed animal, right? Or something that like a plant that you don't talk to, but you know you should talk to them because like plants respond to this. And so everybody brings like a companion kind of thing. Like there's a puppy, like forget it, right? It's like the best 10 minutes of the whole thing. And so it adds some levity, but Again, in, in some sense, it just, it increases the scope of participation. And so I try and actually always do that. I want to talk about where this is going. Is, it, is this staying with us? Is this now how we learn? You know, Alan, you talked a little bit about maybe the pandemic comes back. It's different in different places around the world. But regardless of the pandemic, are we in a place where kind of genie's out of the bottle and some students are going to prefer this? So we got to innovate? Well, I can certainly speak to that. I mean, I did a test in the 80-person workshop with the four cohorts that I mentioned where we kind of regulated it. We said, okay, class class A is in the room and B, C, D, you're online and so on, and then we'll split you like this. And then there was a one day where we said, okay, you can come in or you can go online. It's up to you. You just choose, free form. I got one student. One student came in to get the gold, the in-person gold, and 79 students decided to go online. So I think in terms of personal preferences, it ain't going back in the bowl. I mean, if I'm being honest, I think further education, I'm not sure what it's like in the States, but, but over here, there's a mass kind of crisis, an identity crisis going on. I mean, it's a lot of money for these kids. They see YouTube teaching them so much stuff. And there's Masterclass and Google U and everything, you know. Clearly, the disruptors are circling. There's no two ways about it. I think that the future belongs to the brave ones who are prepared to really double down on this and innovate. And that seems to be, I mean, the university is also a big beast. They take a long time to turn. I mean, you mentioned Chaos Pilot, Alan. There are already people heading in this direction. I'll be very surprised if in five years the landscape isn't radically different. I think education will be online in a substantial degree moving forward, certainly in the university sector. Maybe it's possibly different in schools. I think universities will have to innovate fast because they have to demonstrate value for money and um, they're competing like everybody else is with, with what the internet can do and everyone can see there's a whole bunch more functionality there than, than there was before. 100%. When we think about certain kinds of education and we can talk about design education in particular, what we really didn't have, what we really, really missed is quite 
predictable. It's the studio experience. Things like, oh, can you show me how you did that? Or can I just run this sketch by you for a second? And then a third sort of, you know, sort of quintessential studio experience that, that wasn't there was the energy of everybody like staying up and working on a project for a deadline. Let's say there was a class tomorrow or something like that. This seemed, you know, really seemingly impossible to replicate, but I am with Fred on like all the rest of it. I mean, it is just, it's, it's, it's a very disruptive time in education. I'm Canadian. I'm very sensitive to the price of education here as well as in Canada, frankly. And there are so many alternatives, particularly, well, not particular in the creative field in every single field, right? But design is, is a, is one of those unique fields where that studio experience, where working around physically around other people and the kinds of affordances that happen with that physicality, that co-shared space is, is unique. Is it, is it impossible to replicate it in a, in a digital way? I, I, I don't think so. I mean, I'm actually, I mean, I'll bring in HoloLens. I think many people are very excited about HoloLens. This is very expensive. It's still not happening. Um, early signals seem to actually be quite positive. I don't think it's going to be very accessible. Are there other other kinds of things that can inject this special, these moments into an education that are in some sense, you know, worth paying for? Where some of the other, you know, were like extraordinary teachers. I was actually talking about Chris Doe earlier today, you know, who could just really, really teach at a distance, really, really teach, you know, via video tutorial. There's lots of those people out there and they are very affordable, but you're not, you're not with people physically. And again, there's, there's peer review. There's, you know, lots of innovation in this space around actually supporting each other in education, but not physically, you know, being proximate provides its own, its own challenges. I love it. Thank you both. And Fred, thank you so much for being here, sharing your expertise. That's been great. Listeners to see more of Fred's work, including some very cool performances and interactive projections, ah, check out freddeek.in and we'll post the link. Okay, it's that time. This week and every week, we share our weekly dose of good design, our example of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I'll go first. I think our listeners know that I am on a quest to read 50 books this year. So I just completed a book titled Radicalized by Cory Doctorow. And it's a collection of four short novels. He's amazing. So these are focused on like political, social, technological forces that we're definitely feeling today. And it's kind of like projecting them out just a little bit. So they're so grounded in reality, which, you know, is a little depressing, dystopian, but like every other cautionary tale, I love these because it's sort of like, okay, these are the signals to be like looking for. And his writing style is awesome. It's fast. It's immersive. Like I felt like I was there. So I don't want to give too much away on the four stories, but to whet your appetite, the first one was about sort of like a technological monopoly. And so I want you to think about like you have a toaster, but you can only toast the bread made by the toaster manufacturer. So that's that's a fun one. The second was all around police brutality and racism pulled through the lens of basically like a white passing Superman, not the Superman, but a Superman. Got some copyrights to, to deal with there. And then the third was a very realistic story about how we could potentially achieve universal healthcare in the United States. And then the fourth, I'll just say it was sort of like a survivalist at the end of the world, sort of in their bunker story. The subtitle for Radicalized was 
for tales of our present moment, which I thought was so great. So if you're into dystopian tales and cautionary tales and technology, uh, that's not too far away from being real. Check out Radicalized by Cory Doctorow. Yeah, so I would stick with books and I would go a different direction. I am not typically like obsessed with with authors, but I am obsessed with an author. Her name is Rachel Cusk. She's British, but I think she was born in Canada and grew up in California and then has lived in other places, UK and France. And I just cannot believe the precision and the insights in every single sentence and, you know, there are lots of different kinds of writing, of course, there's writing that is very much like notice the writing, there is writing that is very much like, I can't believe this was even written, I just sort of, you know, moved through this story. There's a lot of people who feel too, again, within the world of design, that we learn more about design through fiction than through nonfiction which I find quite fascinating and have actually acted on it because in our department at Products of Design, um, I was really committed to building a very substantial library here, which we have over the past nine years, but we have a fiction section because of this and we're proud of that. And so I would really, really recommend to your listeners um, this author, Rachel Cusk. She wrote what's called the Outline Trilogy, which are essentially plotless novels. I know that it's a little sort of shorthand. You're going to just have to delve in. There are two memoirs about having a baby and her marriage breaking up that uh, apparently she received just a lot of pushback for. So she's this incredible memoirist. There are a couple of recent books. There's a book of essays that is just extraordinary. So, you know, I was on Amazon today. Sorry, I tried bookstores, but, you know, ordering sort of the next two Rachel Cusk books. And so I'm going to try and um, I'm not going to try. I'm going to read everything that this woman has has ever written. But again, it's the structure and the precision. You know, I, I wouldn't say that it's it's a design thing, but because you and I are design people, we do have that filter and we look at things through the lens of form and structure. And I just I can't believe how good this is. And I will, you know, reread sentences and paragraphs just marveling at the craft and mastery of of what she's done. Uh, I will throw, throw out the listeners, if you have a great weekly dose of good design, a book, product, otherwise, let me know. Uh, you can tweet or share it with me on Twitter at Sam Aquilano. Alan, this was so fun. This has been such a treat to be such a part of, and I, I, lo I love the bonus question at the end too, Sam. Thank you. Okay, that's our show. I want to again thank Alan Chachanov and Fred Deacon for joining us, and thank you all for listening. That was fun. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. Fans, listeners, be sure to rate and subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. Your ratings and reviews mean a lot for other people finding the show. If you want to see more from Design Museum Everywhere, check out our traveling exhibition, Bespoke Bodies, the Design and Craft of Prosthetics, which is on view starting August 16th through October 10th. You'll see our first in-person exhibition in over a year at the Josloff Gallery at the University of Hartford in West Hartford, Connecticut. Excited to have you. Go check out designmuseumeverywhere.org for all the details. You can always find the latest from the Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. We're also on Facebook and LinkedIn. We have an awesome e-newsletter to keep you all in the know. You can sign up for that on our website as well. 
This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom, editing support by Emily Roberts, and additional research by Tanya Chabla. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being with us, and we'll talk again next week.